Last words strike us as something worth remembering, don't they? Whether they're the last words of a, of a soldier before a monumental battle, the last words of an athlete before their retirement, or the last words of a dying person on their deathbed. We remember them. Just a simple search on Wikipedia brings up a list of hundreds of last words that people have spoken throughout the centuries. We memorialize these words because they seem to carry a, significant, a significance that other words do not. So as we come to the text this morning, we encounter the last words that the Apostle John records of Jesus' three-year public ministry. If we flash back to, to chapter one of this gospel, John begins by introducing us to the incarnate word who was with God in the beginning and who was God. He tells us about the, the testimony of John the Baptist who would prepare the way for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then the Apostle John introduces us to this word made flesh in the person of Jesus as he enters onto, into our scene. And from the middle of, of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of, of chapter 12, John gives us sign after sign and, and statement after statement, revealing more and more of who Jesus is as the divine Son of God and who Jesus is as the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. And while the, event, the events and narrative of chapters 1 through 12 take place over the span of, of multiple years, Chapters 13 through 21 zoom in on just the, the last few days of Jesus' life on earth. Starting in, in verse 1 of, of chapter 13, John's gospel narrative moves from the, the loud and, and final cry of Jesus' public ministry to the quiet intimacy of the Last Supper. So as we read the text this morning, I want you to be aware that we're at the turning point of John's gospel. I want you to hear these words as last words, and I want you to recognize the significance and the weightiness that these words carry. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50, let's read together this climactic summary statement that ends Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words. <clears throat> Sorry. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Let's pray. God, the words that you speak to us are spirit and their life. We have 
nowhere else to go but to, to come to your word this morning. And so we ask that you would, you would feed us and nourish us through um, what you have to say to us in your word. We know that we, we need your spirit so that we could comprehend and take in um, just the truth that you reveal. So we pray that you'd be glorified through the preaching of your word and we, we come to you and ask this through your son Jesus. Amen. The main point of our text this morning could be summarized by saying that there are only two ways to respond to the Son who is sent to save the world. God's word this morning confronts you with the reality that Jesus came to save the world, and it presses you to examine your own life by posing the question, how do you respond to the Son who is sent from the Father? How do you respond to the Son who was sent from the Father? According to Jesus and his final words here in John 12, the only possible responses to Jesus are belief and unbelief. And to exhort and encourage and excite his hearers to believe in him, Jesus first summarizes all of the benefits arising from belief, and then to warn and to to plead with and convince those who have rejected him to turn and repent to him and repent and turn to him Jesus warns his hearers of the risks of rejection and unbelief as he reminds them of the coming judgment of the last day so it's my aim this morning to communicate that same encouragement and warning to you and then after we've done that I want to come back around to the, this reality that Jesus came to save the world, and I want to look at the implications that that has for us today. So we'll do three things. We'll look at belief, unbelief, and the salvation of the world. First, consider the the benefits of belief. Look again at verses 44 and 45. They say, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Immediately, in this last cry, Jesus takes you beyond yourself. He takes you outside of the world and its troubles. And he takes you to the Father who is in heaven. Jesus takes you to the Father who is in heaven. When you believe in the Son, you behold and see the face of God who dwells in unapproachable light. This is where the Son takes you. He anchors you in the God who is above and outside and beyond you. Doesn't this give us the stability and encouragement that you and I need to get through every one of our days? When clouds of of unbelief linger over your head and confuse all your thoughts, where will you go to find relief? When the world and the culture around you seems hopeless and all your friends have deserted the faith, who can provide hope and remain steadfast? When death stares you in the face and your bodies fail you and decay, where is life to be found? Jesus takes you to the Father. He takes you to your Maker, He brings you to the place where your soul finds rest. 
gives you eternal life. He gives you himself. This text exhorts you to go continually to Jesus and see the Father. Believe in him. What a benefit this is to those who believe in the Son. Continue with me in verse 46. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Pretty consistently throughout this gospel, John has contrasted the the true light and knowledge of Jesus with the, the darkness of sin and the worldly wisdom of man. As chapter one informed us, this is not just a matchup of even-handed opponents, but Jesus is the, the light that shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what, what benefit of belief or what encouragement is there for you in this promise that the, the light of the world has come? You need to know that Jesus came to dispel your darkness and to illumine the world by his light. The Apostle Paul speaks to this truth in Ephesians 5.8 when he reminds us here is that at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. These verses remind and exhort believers who've experienced the light of Jesus to no longer remain in darkness, to no longer forsake his light. Rather, by being united to Jesus in faith, they should reflect the light of Christ by living holy and pure and upright lives. Furthermore, these these verses reveal to us the power that Jesus' light has over the darkness. His light is advancing and his radiance will one day fill the entire world. Listen to this observation made by St. Athanasius in the 4th century regarding the incarnation and light of Christ. He said, Since the Savior came to dwell among us, not only does idolatry no longer increase, but it is getting less and gradually ceasing to be. Similarly, not only does the wisdom of the Greeks no longer make any progress, but that which used to be is disappearing. And demons, so far from continuing to impose on people by their deceits and oracle givings and sorceries, are routed by the signs of the cross if they so much as try. On the other hand, while idolatry and everything else that opposes the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and weakening and falling, see, the Savior's teaching is increasing everywhere. Worship, then, the Savior who is above all, and mighty, even God the Word, and condemn those who are being defeated and made to disappear by Him. When the sun has come, the darkness prevails no longer. Any of it that may be left anywhere is driven away. What an incredible statement that is about the the advancement of the gospel and the light of Christ in the fourth century world. But I want to ask you, what, what about now? Is the light of the gospel still advancing in our world today? Or is the, the darkness of the world somehow quenching the light of Jesus? 
It's the wisdom of man somehow triumphing over the foolishness of the cross? Do you find your own dark thoughts and heart idols and hidden sins difficult to overcome? If you find yourself being pessimistic about the power of the gospel and the light of Jesus in our world, this text wants to encourage you with the truth that Jesus came to dispel your darkness and to illumine the world by his light. He is the light that shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. By believing in him, you can experience the benefit of his light and walk in it. After having looked at a few of the ways that that Jesus seeks to encourage you and excite you to believe in him by drawing your attention to these benefits arising from belief, in the remaining verses of our text, Jesus also wants to warn you about the risk of rejection to show you what that rejection and unbelief often look like. So second, consider the risk of rejection. Follow along with me in verses 47 through 49. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Notice what what Jesus says here about those who reject him. He says they are the ones that hear his words and do not keep them. He's, He's actually drawing our attention back to a warning that God had made through his prophet Moses in Deuteronomy 18, where God said that, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. Here in the book of John, Jesus is reminding us that this is what rebellion and what rejection of God have always looked like. God has spoken to the world through his prophets and in his word, and people have not received it on his authority. In John 5, Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So if, if all of the Bible is, is ultimately about Jesus, which it is, and if even all of the, the Old Testament points to Christ, which it does, then to reject or to, to disbelieve any part of God's word is to reject or disbelieve the Lord himself. The, the disbelieving Jews from earlier in John 12, failed to see that the Messiah was the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets. But I want to ask you today, where, where might you be tempted to reject God's word as authoritative? We have 
in our Bibles everything we need to know in order to know Jesus, to know the Father, to obey him, to walk in the light, and to have fellowship with him. So do you receive his words? Do do you let his word shape how you spend your time? Do you let his word direct your television habits? Are, Are the shows that you watch pleasing to the Lord and do they keep you in the light? Do you let God's word influence how you parent and discipline your children? Do you let it shape how you honor and you treat your parents? Do you let his word direct your views on marriage and sexuality? Do you receive his words and believe them and love them? You cannot come to the Father except through the Son, and you cannot come to the Son unless you've received the words he has spoken from the Father. And if you receive Jesus' words, then you must receive all of Scripture because all of it points to and finds its fulfillment in him. For, for anyone who has not received Christ that's here this morning, for anyone who has or, or is currently rejecting his authoritative word, this final cry from the Lord is, is beckoning you to, to, to turn and repent. This is a gracious word of warning for anyone who has ears to hear. You may be familiar with, with 2 Peter Chapter 3, verse 9, which says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Is this not the, the heart of God revealed in our text today? That you would hear and receive his word? It was for love that God sent his son into the world to save sinners. It was so that all might see through his light. Consider what John Calvin says regarding the purpose of Jesus' words here in verses 47 and 48. He writes, For it is as if Jesus had said, Lo, I am here to invite all, and forgetting the character of judge, I have this as my single object, to persuade all, and to rescue from destruction those who are already twice ruined. No man, therefore, is condemned on account of having despised the gospel, except he who, disdaining the lovely message of salvation, has chosen of his own accord to draw down destruction on himself. As we think about how this statement relates to our text this morning, It seems that the warning leveled here against those who do not receive Jesus' words falls most heavily on those who've heard and rejected God's word most. Our minds may go to the Jewish leaders from our text last week who would have been well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures pointing forward to Jesus. And, And while it may be easy for us to see how those Jews brought down destruction on themselves, It may be more difficult to see the the parallel danger that confronts any of us who've grown up in religious homes. May this text warn us against being those 
who would hear God's word but never keep them. May we never become comfortable in our religious duties while remaining far from Jesus. Would we be aware of this risk of rejecting him and not receiving his words? I told you that there are only two possible responses to Jesus. You can believe in him and receive all the benefits that come from believing in the Son of God, including eternal life. Or you can disbelieve in him and not receive his words, face the judgment of the last day. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. He is the Lord of your life, or you are. But either way you respond, I want to remind you that the Son was sent to save the world. This is the last point I want to draw your attention to. The Son was sent to save the world. In the last part of verse 47, Jesus says that I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Another way to articulate this idea would be to say that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In this last cry of Jesus' public ministry, he reminds you why he came to earth. He reminds you of what he will accomplish. He's not just going to attempt to accomplish it, he will accomplish it. And I want you to realize that, that this theme is nothing new to John's gospel. The book of John is about revealing Jesus to you. It's about the light coming into your darkness. It's about the forgiveness of your sins. It's about the coming judgment. And it's about the salvation of the world. Now I understand that, that talking about this idea of the salvation of the world or this statement in Jesus that he did not come to judge the world but to save the world that might lead some to think that, that our text for this morning reveals some form of, of universalism or, or salvation for all. But clearly, John doesn't have this in mind because if you'll recall back in uh, chapter 3, verse 36, he said that whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or if, if that were not enough, Jesus' is many other words regarding hell, and the witness of the rest of the New Testament would prohibit us from, any, from adopting any, any such view. So when you hear about the salvation of the world, I want you to understand this to mean two things. The first is what Jesus meant in chapter 12, verse 32, when he says that when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So the salvation of the world means the salvation of all types of people. It means the fulfillment of the mystery of God that was kept secret for long ages but is now being revealed when Christ is glorified. Paul says in Ephesians that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The rejection of the Jews that we read about last week in chapter 12, verses 36 through 43, means that salvation and joy and light is now about to go forth into the world. The death of Jesus brought about by the sinful, disbelieving, and wicked hands of the Jewish leaders happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Do you realize that the gospel has come to us in Sioux Falls because Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. What a mystery this is. I want you to recognize that that God's plan of salvation from eternity past has always been global in its breadth and purpose. Jesus did come to save the world and to save all types of people in the world. This is why our church has sent Pastor Greg across the world multiple times to train pastors in the Middle East. This is why we've encouraged people to support Bible translators. This is why we can teach our children to sing that red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. It's because this word, the word made flesh, was given for the world. We have no monopoly on the market when it comes to Jesus and his salvation. And so we seek to spread the good news as far and as wide as we can. The second thing I want you to understand about the phrase, the the salvation of the world, is this. I believe there really will be a day in history when it will be appropriate for us to say that the world has been saved. Now, I don't mean this in any absolute sense of the word. Like I said before, we don't believe the Bible to teach universalism. But like Jonathan Edwards and others like him, I do believe that God's intentions for the world have always been redemptive and salvific. I believe that our text this morning wants us to see the the magnification of God's love and his grace in the salvation of many, many sinners. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, this same Apostle John tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And later, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, John tells us of a great multitude standing before the throne that no one could number. So if you're here this morning... And your tendency might be to doubt the goodness and the love and the justice of God. And I know I can feel this sometimes too. Then know this. Jesus came into the world to save sinners and reconcile the world to himself. And he will not fail. God would be completely just to leave you and I in our sins, letting us spend an eternity apart from his goodness and his glory. But instead, he chooses to save a multitude of people so large that you and I cannot even count the number, cannot count it. When all is said and done, yes, there will be many people who've rejected 
Christ and rejected his words and chosen torment and hell apart from him. But when we turn our eyes to heaven, we see such a great multitude of redeemed people from all throughout history that in one sense we we will be able to say that God has saved the world. We preach an efficacious cross. Jesus accomplished the salvation of the world in history by his death and resurrection. And God will not stop in his mission on earth until Jesus has put every last enemy under his foot and presented the kingdom, this saved world, as a gift to the Father. So, the two things we should understand the the salvation of the world to mean are, are one, that God will save a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And two, that one day, the world really will be redeemed. When we began this morning, I talked to you about the importance of last words. And I want to return now to the idea of last words as we end. But I want to do it a little bit differently this time around. I want to remind you that Jesus will have the last word. He will get his glory and he will receive his bride. He will bring judgment on the last day and he will have effectively saved the world. Because of Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day when every creature will say, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is the glorious future of the world. This is where all of history is heading. God is saving people, name by name, family by family, community by community until his work is finished. He will have the last word. And Jesus has said to us in John's gospel, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let me ask you again in closing, how do you respond to the Son who was sent from the Father? He came and he gave himself away and shed his blood that you could be cleansed from sin and brought to the Father and to his light. Will you receive him and his words in faith? Will you reject him? This is the invitation of the Son. Let's pray. God, would you capture our eyes 
with your glory so that we can see what you're doing. See what you're doing in our community. See what you're doing in our city, in our nation. Lord, we know that salvation and belief and faith are all gifts from you. So we pray that you would that you would give those to us, you'd give those to people around us, that we would be able to see your glory rightly, uh, that we would be able to see how this salvation is taking place in day-to-day life. Would you let us participate in your plan of redemption and give us steps to know uh, how to begin? Would we have faith in our own lives and in our families and would we share this message of of reconciliation as far as we can. I pray this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.